Yes, I am sorry. Last week we talked about Swami's explaining to us try you know nibble around the edges instead of instead of going after the big battles that you can't that you're not going to win that will eat you and that will eat you uh-huh. and that was like a, just a huge understanding for me because I saw that that's what I've been doing I've been wasting tremendous amounts of time and energy trying to fight battles I can't win and you know then that leads to other delusions and and the whole idea of just approaching the nibble, the nibble thing, if it just feels so freeing and empowering, and you know, all kinds of positive. And I'm just wondering if that's a very, a fairly common mistake that a lot of people make, or was it just unique to? Probably can't be unique to me, but is that just a? It's just Maya that makes us think we can get in there. And... No, that's right. It's a classic error. It's a classic error and a very Serious one, but once you see through it, it no longer holds you. So to see through that one is a really big one. Very, very good. Um, I, I'm working, um, I'm doing a, a weekly webinar at, uh, at the time frame that works for India, and I'm doing the Bhagavad Gita commentary again. I mean, I did it once here, and now I'm doing it, I'm going to do it again and for the rest of my life. I'm going to be able to, it took me 52 weeks going 10 pages at a time, so... I don't know how long it'll take. I expect to just age, you know, as class by class. Like <laughs> Finally, there'll be just this little shriveled person turning the last page. Could you, could you please turn the page for me, you know? <laughs> but I just think it's going to take a long time. But the point is, in the introduction to that, which, you know, I, I, all of these book studies, I hope you all enjoy them. I, they're an excuse for me, is what I was going to say. Because if I, even if there was no... I don't know if I could do it. Well, let me phrase it differently. I don't think that Divine Mother would give me as much as she gives because it's to, it's to pass it on. But the experience for me is I learned so much. It's fascinating to me. In the introduction to the Bhagavad Gita commentary, um, Swamiji talks about the fact that he's been, he was, he, this was whenever he was 80 years old, and he was really wanting to get this book done and he kept trying to figure out how to write it, and he wasn't, hadn't quite started. And Jyotish and Devi were arriving in India on a certain day, and he knew that if he didn't get started before they, they arrived, there, that he would be distracted and he would lose it. So he plunged in like this. And I also came to India. It was the visitor season in India right then. It was Swamiji had moved there 2006. I think the book was done in 2006. He'd moved at the end of 2003. And so I was one of a parade of Americans who just passed through because we were all going to see him because we all wanted to be there for a hundred reasons. And we, we all, in, sequentially, Parvati and Pranaba talked about it. I mean, I, there just were lots of people who came through. And it was very intent. He wrote ten pages a day regardless of what else was going on. And he wrote the book in two months and then edited it in another month or so. I mean super conscious, not normal. But here's the point that was interesting. He said, whereas, and not only did he have visitors, but as Jyotish and Devi wrote in their their preface to that book, he played the gracious host. He he took us out, he um, had satsangs, we had meals together. So it wasn't like, you know, we were just tiptoeing around and he was writing and then he would go back to his cave. He was completely engaged with all these people. But he said, in the end, it helped him 
because it helped, because he was so elevated in what he was perceiving, but the fact that he was constantly engaged with us lesser mortals reminded him of, of what he was trying to accomplish, that he needed to, he needed to gra- as he put it, ground the book in the realities of people who were going to read it and not merely in the elevated experience of his own communion with Master and Krishna and Veda Vyasa. So having us all just around all the time helped him. That's why, I mean, by this time, by this time, that the Gita was a transition book in a certain sense, by the time he did this, which he also just wrote so quickly, he, he really had that balance just so. So just even little things like that, which is, he just g- gets it. Like, oh yeah, that's what we do. We're always chasing after the unsolvable because we don't, we don't have the patience to nibble. And he just, he just says it just so. Mm-hmm. I also think that a lot of it is just, um, we just don't understand how the path works. That's exactly right. We don't understand how the path works. And so if we've got to overcome the ego, then let me overcome the ego. We think it's a manifestation of sincerity. It's actually in the book, which is going to be published in a couple of months, the, the book called Ask Asha. <laughs> There's a, actually, the very first question deals with exactly this question. And what was so interesting to me about that question, I, I knew who had written it to me when I received it back, because that book started as the answers that I was writing every week or two to people. And, but it took a huge amount of editing before I felt it was really book-worthy. But that the first letter, someone asked a question, and I answered it. In, in this, this was the answer, but that was not obvious in his question, and it was partly because I just knew him and knew who'd sent it to me, and I knew what he was really asking me, even though he hadn't asked it. But then, when I was trying to really edit it so it would show, that was when I, I came up with the idea that you're looking for a shortcut. You really, don't, you don't really have the patience of all the steps in between. Because that's what I had just answered him. You're looking for a shortcut and there isn't one. And it was that, okay, I want to be done with the ego, so I'll just attack the ego. Whereas, in fact, you know, the issue to attack was whether he kept his room clean or not. It just like it needed to be nibbled at. And so one would attack the big one, because the question was, I keep making the same mistakes over and over again no matter how hard I try. And then I answered, you're looking for a shortcut, which didn't sound like that at all, did it? And I finally wrote to him, your problem is not a lack of willpower. The problem is you're, you're not applying your willpower to the right issue. And you'll just keep applying it to the wrong issue and you'll keep failing because you're, try- you're trying to use your willpower to get a shortcut. You've just got to slow down and be who you are. Which, you see, that comes back. It all, it all ends up weaving together in this incredible picture most people left Master because the bright light he shone on them was more than they wanted to see. So they found fault with him as a guru and went away. There was no fault with him as a guru. He just showed them what their limitations really were and what the work was really going to be. And it was just like my own friend had said to me many years ago, you, you explained my problems to me more clearly than I want to know them. And we don't want to really realize how... I, I, I've enjoyed this. If we can't be divinely perfect, well, then we'll at least be... Um, I mean, we, we, we want to be anything but what we actually are. We try to be the worst if we can't be the best, 
because we're just this boring, mediocre middle. And the problems that we have are so dull, just so dull, that they just don't, you know, they just don't have any je ne sais quoi about them. They're just, just really dull. And that's what it is. That's just, you just plod through all that really mundane stuff. And so you nibble. But you just somehow, I was just actually thinking this, this morning, this afternoon, just before I came, I was just thinking about small habit, you know, just like what do I read? I'm a, I'm a, a leisure time reader. That's how I relax, I like to read. And I've realized, just, you know, in the last six or seven years, I've just completely transformed what, what I read. I've, I've, I mean, by, by deliberate effort, but it was really the nibble method because I was thinking of this. I've just gradually pushed farther and farther back entertainment reading and replaced it more and more. You know, so now entertainment reading is biographies of saints or something, which I always did read, but there was always a lot more entertainment reading in there. And I just sort of very slightly just tried to shift. And, but suddenly I just realized, wow, I just do a whole lot less of that than I used to. And it's a small thing, but not really. It's just a sign, you know, your tastes change. And that's how this path works. You just wake up one morning and realize, huh, look at that. Hmm, haven't thought about that in a long time. You're not quite sure when it shifted. But you just, you know, kept nibbling at it and then suddenly it's gone. So that's why I say repeatedly, I don't know how you change on the spiritual path. Just don't quit. And you'll just wake up one day and be different. You won't really know how you got there. Yeah, that's better than boing back yoga. The boing back yoga is you, you attack something you can't win. You make a big you know, inner point of this big thing you're going to do, and then you boing back. <laughs> like one of those little paddle ball things kids used to have. You throw it way out, and it just whacks back to the paddle. You know, no ego, no ego, whack back. Swami could declare it gone. And it's good to know that it can be declared because there'll come a moment. Yeah, there'll come a moment. I mean, that, that sutra, beside, you know, those two points, nibble at it, nibble then one day you will be able to That's do exactly. that. That answers the entire question of, well, how in the heck does it work and why can't I? Because all you ever see outside of yourself, including stories and things about the spiritual path, are often dramatic stories and events. So you kind of get that image early on, and if you don't have, if you're not fortunate enough or have enough grace or whatever to have it explained to you the way Swami explains it to us and has shown us, you could go, I bet bet we go incarnations doing that, don't we? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the long uphill climb, <laughs> Marilyn. <laughs> could you, could you explain the relationship between nibbling at something and Lahiri's um, answer? Meditate, meditate, meditate. Well, it's the same thing because whenever anyone would present a problem to Lahiri, he would just say, "Just go work on it." I mean, what, by saying do kriya. What he was, Kriya is another way you nibble at the ego. He was saying, you don't think that you can just go at that problem, just start transforming yourself, and you'll find that the problem disappears. And so Kriya is nibbling. You know, you do one Kriya, and you create positive magnetism. You do another round of Kriyas, you're creating more positive magnetism, and slowly the whole thing transforms. But it, it precisely lacks 
that dramatic um, idea. He just says, go home and meditate. Just go home and do your sadhana. You have this big thing that you want to have a big deal about. He says, just go home and do your sadhana. But, but what should I do? Just go home and do your sadhana. Oh. And that's the patient application of willpower. I mean, definitely, Kriya's nibbling at the ego. That's sort of what I'm going to talk about later. So I'll, I'll leave it for the moment and then, because that's a lot of what I was going to say. But before I did that, um, I really want to share this, partly just because it pleases me so much. Some of you have already seen this. But because I talked last week so much about, um, yeah, about, uh, oh, just, you know, the attitude I wish to have if I reincarnate. Well, Tandava, bless his soul, who's, who's in a poetry challenge right now, and has been writing poetry every day, he wrote a little poem for me, which so, for me in the sense that it's, it's dedicated to the idea that I was expressing and I like it so much. I just wanted to share it because this is a thought that's really dear to me. And he captured it so well. And since everybody else heard it last week, I wanted to put it in again. So this is called, When I Am Young Again. And he wrote it for Asha. When I am young again, I will be old. Born wrinkled, gray by kindergarten, a different kind of unsteadiness in my first toddling steps. Or perhaps I will look like other children until you look into my eyes. My eyes will remember before my voice can tell. Remember the long road of learning to use a body and then then learning how not to use it and then letting it go. When I am young again, my mind and my heart will seem two separate beings, but I will remember the truth and I will remind them. When I, was young, when I am young again, I will play politely with toys, my parents smiling over me, but I will not cry if they take the toys away. I will look ahead into the memory of my earlier, later years and see the long progression of toys, of jobs, relationships, challenges, glories. I will see them come and I will see them go and I will be free to laugh. When I am young again, the distance in my eyes will not seem far away, but will offer us space for our souls to meet. When I am young again, I will not hesitate to grow older, greeting each year as an old friend. And as I grow older again, I will marvel. I will marvel at God's play in the world, and at his expanding light within me, drawing me ever more joyfully onward until that final blessed moment of freedom when I am young again, when I am eternal. (laughs) Isn't that good? Yeah. I thought it was a great poem, and it just spoke so deeply of what I I love when I'll be gray by kindergarten. And a different kind of wobble in my toddling step. And I love, I will play with my toy. I will play politely with my toys. <laughs> anyway, it was too delightful not to share. And he's not here today, so I could, didn't have to worry about embarrassing him. All right. Now, anything else before we... Yes, Asai Ganesh? It was actually almost like a coincidence that he mentioned about the reading thing that you were just talking about because just today and recently I was also thinking about 
things that I used to imagine as being entertaining uh-huh. and somehow don't fit my taste any longer. And um, a lot of things which I had assumed as being my personality uh-huh. don't seem like my... It just occurred to me that the whole idea of what I think of as my personality is just something so transient. It's There's no real substance to it. I mean, I assume that I'm this person, like even the tastes, which is what I generally think of as being a certain personality. It's just so not real. Yes, excellent. Um, some uh, when the, uh, there there is the line that Swamiji has is here. I think it's Sutra two two. It's the one where he says the best way to overcome the ego is by sensitive, loving service to others. And I've I've repeated that one because I really like that one. And because I've had responsibility for so long for being in a position of um, both sharing and you know, defining the energy to a certain extent in many different groups um, I, I've, the, who I am is based on, on what I'm asked to do and I was talking to a friend of mine we were, who's, who's had a similar life to mine and we were joking about what kind of a personality would we have if we had the freedom to have one. <laughs> and it was a joke, but not really. Because think about Master. Master just played whatever role was required of him. Swamiji tells of an incident that he never elucidated, or I don't know if it's published or anywhere else or not. He just talked about once when Master was in the kitchen, and there was a, a spider in the kitchen, and Master went through this huge thing of just this intense... Uh, concern about about getting the spider i mean anxiety like like apparent fear of the spider and the necessity to get the spider out of the kitchen this whole play and swami just i think he never wrote it cuz he never really understood but there was master just pretending to be afraid of a spider like why would he care and swami just said he knew it was for somebody and so people would say well master had this you know he was a little bit nervous about spiders <laughs> Master liked to cook. He was very fond of mangoes. You know, he really enjoyed this. He didn't, none of it. All of it was service to the people he was supposed to help. And that is one of the ways you overcome the ego. It's not like you're suppressing anything. It's just over time, you become what, is, what it is necessary to be in order to fulfill a higher purpose than my preferences. And that was Swamiji. He just... He just was whatever he needed to be. It wasn't a question of what he would like or not like. Likes and dislikes. You just overcome them. When we went once to this, uh, when soft contact lenses first came out, they were at first they were just kind of a real novelty, and there was this a very holistic ophthalmologist or optometrist, ophthalmologist I believe, who would give you these soft contact lenses, which was a great thing because there was no LASIK surgery, and a lot of us all wore glasses, and Swamiji preferred that we not wear our glasses when we teach, but I would be teaching like over here, because I didn't know where you all were (laughs) without my glasses. So we went on this little jaunt to this um, Marin County holistic eye doctor, and so to give you your contact lenses, you had to fill fill out a whole personality profile. And one of the questions was, what do you like to do? First, it was like, what do you do? What is your profession? So Swami wrote that he was a writer and a lecturer. 
And then it said, what do you like to do? He sort of looked, he said, right, lecture? <laughs> but it was like, we all laughed, like we hadn't asked that question. What do you like to do? How could you, who has the, the leisure to ask what I like to do? I'd like to do what it is that I'm asked to do. And there, that whole way of even self-definition, it was rather fun because we all had the same response to it, led by Swami, but it was all of our response. It, it was a question we hadn't asked very often because everything had shifted over to what is needed, what is trying to happen, what is needed. And, and there was no martyrdom in it. That's, that's the point. When I'd say, what kind of a personality would we have if we had the freedom to have one? There's no martyrdom in that. My friend and I were both quite amused by that. It had been a long time um, since we needed to say, oh, but this is, this is who I am. It was like, well, this is, this is what we're being asked to do. And by the grace of God, you know, God was asking us to do things that were somewhat natural to us. But Swami, sometimes the guru treats you differently. Like Swami talks about his first assignment, having to work on the building site, and just how really terrible he was at it. And finally, Master put him in things that were more congenial, but part of it was just to break his thought that I'm not this kind of person. Why, why not? Just why am I not this kind of person? Maybe, I, I mean, I've rarely in my life done carpentry or anything. I built this little, when I had my little trailer, my little green trailer. I don't remember. Maybe I had no stairs. Maybe I just, because it was a pretty big, it was on a hill. And so it was a pretty big step up. So I wanted stairs, so I built them myself. I think in the history of carpentry, they were probably the worst carpentry job ever, just horrible. But I was so proud of them. And I was so proud of them because they needed to be done, and I had just done it. I hadn't allowed myself to think I couldn't do it. So I did it very, from any point of view, terrible, except from the point of view of pure function. And they just held up and never broke and served me for many years. And every time I would see all the bent nails and the really rugged wood and everything, I was so pleased. Swami's mother had a saying, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. (laughs) Which was like, why why do I have to be like that? Some things we can't overcome, but... At the end of his life, Swamiji just said, I'm a picky eater, and I freely admit it. (laughs) Because he was very hard to cook for, and he got more and more picky the older he got. He just let it go. He didn't need to be generous in that way. Yeah. All right. Any, Jill has a question. Just a comment. Um, you need the mic. Again, it's about Tandava since he isn't here. <laughs> he wrote another poem today that I thought was just absolutely amazing. It was about words it was about, a, I mean, a whole poem about words speaking to each other and words. They were uh-huh. gathering for like a convention. Well, because it was, he's writing poetry. Every yeah, day. And it was all about yeah. words. And then I, at the end of it, I thought, you know, we're, that's who, who we are. We're only words. I mean, our, it's such a play yeah. that yeah. everything is just words. Well, this is I the... Mean, what you're saying is what you're saying is exactly what Saiganesh yeah. was saying. Like, we're we're habituated to think of this as myself, right? And it's really it's just like a little, it's like the tiniest like pat of butter just spread really thin over the surface because it's it's there, but it's really like just a little bit of oil on your skin. That's about how deep and about how real 
what we think of as ourselves actually is. When Bella Potapovskaya passed away, she's the woman who passed away, is such an odd euphemism. Um, anyway, when she, when she left this planet, um, she's, uh, she's Maria's, you all know, know Maria Warner more, she's Maria Warner's older sister, the mother and both sisters died of cancer, it's family cross. Bella's the one who you've heard me talk about was lying there in the last days seeing all the thousands of faces going by and realized she'd been all of them. But Swamiji made a very interesting comment about her at her funeral. He said, most of Bella was not on this plane. Most of Bella was existing in some other realm other than this one. It was really interesting because her sister said to Swami, how did you know that? Because no one else really knew that as much as, as she did. It was just like she just brought a little bit of her personality into this world and she kept most of it as an inner reality and just put on as much of a personality she needed to have in order to function. Don't misunderstand, she was a small, fierce Russian woman (laughs) with a tremendously talented in countless ways. She also, for me, did one of the most delightful English is not my first language statements I've always enjoyed. She wanted to say that she was totally opposed to what somebody had wanted to do, and she wasn't going to cooperate. She said, they'll only do that through my corpse. She meant over my dead body. (laughs) I looked at it for a moment, trying to figure out what she was trying to say. (laughs) This was long before she was ill, so there was no reference to her death. (laughs) Through my corpse. (laughs) Okay. Anything else? Bella was very artistic and had a tremendous sense of beauty and I think part of it she just, this world wasn't beautiful enough for her. So she just lived in a, some realm that was more beautiful than this one. And we don't even, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what the people around us are doing. It's a gift, um, speaking of you, to completely change countries and cultures because then you just get to rip it all away and think, uh, one of our friends, American, when he went to India, uh, Steve Barry mentioned to me that when he went to India for the first time, he never came back to America for five years. And he said it was just the best thing in the world he could have done because it completely broke that identification, which he really could see was just entirely arbitrary of how everything has to be and who I am in relationship to it. Just because I was born there, I think this way. That's why Swami was so unusual. Wherever he was, people thought he was a native both in the way he could speak the language and just the way he behaved, because he did not, well, I'm in Italy, I'll just be Italian. Why should I be American if I'm in Italy? If I'm in Spain, I should be Spanish. If I'm in Mexico, I'll be Mexican. If I'm in India, I'll be Indian. He confused people in India because he had this white skin. <laughs> you know, when he was there in the early years, they just... But he embraced it. It's a, it's a good practice. I mean, whether or not we're traveling and changing cultures... But just wherever we are. I remember I was visiting my parents once and um, I just, I didn't have, my parents were not interested in the things that I was interested in deeply, I mean, what my life was really about. And I, as a consequence, was somewhat separated from the world that they were in. And I was visiting them and I just remember having this sensation that I was going to actually die of boredom. I didn't know if there was such a thing. Bored to death is a phrase. But then I thought to myself, this is not appropriate to feel this way. 
And I just prayed to Master to be able to, to whatever it was that I was resisting. You know, just enter into this world. You have nothing to fear. I mean, it's not a, it's not a temptation or a threat. If it had been a temptation or a threat, that was different. Please understand, that's very different. But there was no temptation or threat. I was just clinging to the personality that I was accustomed to having. And it was just like, why? And I just sort of let go. And then after that I enjoyed them always. And it wasn't for the same reasons that I enjoy my um, devotee friends, but why not? They're children of God too, and they're just acting out their little dramas, and what am I afraid of here? Nibble away at the ego. I mean, there's never a chance when you can't just nibble away at the ego. Now that one you have to be a little careful because you cannot enter a world that um, still attracts you or will, or, or will make your hands smell like onions when you're finished. But that wasn't the case there. Okay. So, I'm very happy to have given further emphasis to that because I love that point. So now... We are at um, Sutra 2.11. In the active state, those obstacles which we've been listing, attractions, aversions, etc., we've been, you know, this is all continuous, attachments, aversions, egoism, um, ignorance, thinking what is pure is impure, etc. In the active state, the active state is us, (laughs) Um, these obstacles can be destroyed by meditation. And this is what Marilyn was asking a moment ago about Lahiri just saying to do Kriya. And then Swami says it was during meditation he was able to drive the delusion of ego out of his mind, comparing the pleasant sensation of intellectual brilliance with the peacefulness of meditation, I saw that it was not only limiting to my consciousness, but perfectly ridiculous. (laughs) That's why he was able to get over it so easily. It just suddenly looked absurd to him. Why would I be like this? Well, what I wanted to say about this, and this was the little point that I didn't say last week because I was saving it up for this one. In the previous sutras, when we were talking about the, um, the imperfections that are, what is the exact word, sustained imperfections, and that... God could remove by grace, but why should he? I spent a long time talking about that, but I'm just referring to that. That that tends us to start thinking about having to to endure these worldly experiences or these disappointments or the fulfillment of desires or all the things really that Tom was referring to at the beginning. We're just recognizing we can't skip any of these stages. We have to just live through them. God is not going to rescue us. We have to just relax. There is no shortcut. I'm standing where I'm standing. I'm going forward, but this is what the terrain looks like when I'm walking here. There's the mountain, but here are my feet. And we're going to just go through all this before we get there. But this is, the other half of that is, and this is an extremely important part of this, it's not just that we live through these experiences and because they're so sour, they teach us, or as we've emphasized, and this is important, we actually get exactly what we want and we're holding in our hands the object of lifetimes of desire and it's kind of like, oh, now what? It just, because we've got the whole thing that we were so sure would make us happy 
and there's still a lingering emptiness in the heart. That's why all desires have to be fulfilled. Um, We have to, even the desire for an ice cream, as long as we imagine it will give us a fulfillment, um, it will make us restless until we actually know from our own experience, not that it's horrible, and this is the balancing. We don't have to talk so all the time about how terrible the world is. The world just is. It's exactly what it is. It's not enough. It's duality. It's oscillating. It's endless change. It's not that calm sinking into our own reality that is the truth of our nature. So no matter how wonderful the relationship, how exquisite the fame, how glorious um, the artistic achievement, whatever it might be, it's just not enough. Master told Taramata that he had seen several of her paintings in the museum in Paris because, and that who she'd been, Swami actually thought that she might have been the artist Watteau, I think was his name. And he said, he, he had reasons, I'm sure, but one of them was that Taramata, by the time Swami knew her, she had, as he put it, just let herself go. She was, you know, she was chubby, and she put no effort into her appearance, but when she was young, she was exquisitely beautiful. And he said she, she looked like the women in his paintings. It was like he had this, that artist had the ideal of what the, the beautiful face should look like, and then she made it. But she was extremely uninterested in that fact. It's like, what difference did it make to her? She had followed that trail. And later on, uh, somebody pulled out some information about that artist. And it was an interesting match, many aspects of her personality and his personality, just to lend verisimilitude uh, to the, the idea. Is that how you pronounce that word? I get my words from books. <laughs> but... but uh, validity to the idea. Um, I think it was a total wrong use of that word. Tantra's inspired me to think about words. Uh, But it's just like, been there, done that. Of all the slang phrases that have passed through time over decades, Swamiji almost never allowed slang to come out of his mouth because slang has a vibration and his vibration was too refined for it. Once he, he said, oh, that was very unpleasant. In fact, it was. And then he kind of went like this. The pits. <laughs> so yeah, it was just so comical. It's just like it was sort of like this energy between him and those words. But the phrase "been there, done that" was one he particularly enjoyed. He thought that was a really a masterpiece of slang. Been there, done that. But if you have been there and you have done that, uh, you you know now. I've drunk that cup and I'm still thirsty. Through many lives, I've had all these experiences. So, but the other way that we learn is that we have the contrast, and that's exactly what Swami's talking about. And this is where, when you get on the spiritual path, when you become a disciple, and as Master explains, when you learn Kriya or something like it, which is some uh, scientific way of meditating that actually really cooperates with the liberating of the vrittis. I mean, any form of meditation will help, well, most forms of meditation will help a little, but some are just more efficient and are deeper and are, are come down from a, a clearer and a higher understanding. And Kriya is simply one of those, where when you're doing Kriya, 
and all the techniques that lead up to it, energization, om, hong sa, all of it is part of the Kriya Yoga path, you're really cooperating with taking yourself into that deeper reality. You're also cooperating with untying all those vrittis, literally untying them, just liberating them from their, um, liberating yourself from their hold on your consciousness, liberating them from their whirling attachment to your spine, your astral spine. And so that's one aspect of it, which is that you just extricate, extricate them generically. You, you, you shift the energy. But the other is, and how self-evident is this, you get a taste of the, of the potential. And what causes you to lose interest in one thing is that you have replaced it with something that you enjoy more. Just as we were saying earlier, that which used to seem entertaining just isn't interesting. That which used to seem tasty just isn't tasty anymore. That which used to be sort of fun just isn't fun anymore. Because you have had a different experience and you suddenly realize it. When we were working to incorporate Ananda as a California city, that was the year 1981, um, I was working with this uh, Nidruva and this woman named Dallas Atkins and I were the trio. Both Dallas and Nidruva were attorneys. I was just an a attorney from past life. <laughs> and so we were all sort of on this. And we had a lot of contacts in town especially with the people who were on the board that were going to make the decisions. And as a consequence, Dallas and I were invited to a Christmas party given by um, a local engineer who was a a, a prominent man who had an engineering firm, um, whatever, landscaping and, I don't know, buildings, things associated with building and so on. So we went to this Christmas party. We thought, well, what the heck, you know, we'll do this. In those years, we, we didn't really have much... Uh, beyond a superficial connection with many people who didn't live in Ananda. So he goes to this party, and he, so he's a, he himself is a very nice man. We, we liked him very well. So we go to this party, and we're sort of there for a while, and I'm kind of looking around. There's a piano in the room, but it's turned to the wall, and it's in the corner. There's, I'm, I'm observing, there's, no, there's nothing planned. And I realized we were all just going to stand around and drink. I mean, drink alcohol. And then we would all become, this was the plan, of course, not us, but the, the guests, would gradually all become slightly inebriated. And in our slight inebriation, we would think we were having a good time. I mean, there was no music, there was no poetry, there was no funny skits, there was no nothing. We were just going to drink and then go home. Unbelievable. And we just sort of stood there with our ginger ale in our hand for a little while and just watched everybody gradually, I mean, it had been so long, and I never did much of it anyway, but just sort of watched that happen and watched them imagine that they were enjoying themselves. And my heart actually, my heart really hurt, especially for the man who was giving the party, because he had more going than that. But no one even thought it odd. But, of course, what we had experienced in terms of even, even just how to have a nice party it was just so different that there was no... Uh, because we'd had, we'd had the spiritual experience of coming together as souls and lifting your consciousness instead of blurring it. And it was no comparison. 
But if you bring all your friends together, you want to all unite your energy in an upward movement, or at least in a creative way, or um, just something creative. If not spiritual, at least creative. But that was because we'd had those experiences. And so it's not merely that Kriya itself undoes the vrittis, is that when we put ourselves into spiritual, spiritual atmosphere, we get a taste of our own potential. And we get a taste of something that actually does fulfill us. And that's how those obstacles are overcome. I, because I went to Ananda when I was relatively young, I missed a huge section of popular culture. Sometimes people will be, you know, my generation will... We were once at a Christmas party and everybody broke into this song that everybody knew that I'd never heard that had been some theme for some television show that I had totally missed. And I'd never heard the song and I was stunned that everybody in the room knew it. It was some song that had the same words as a Christmas carol and it just it was just a joke for a minute. But for me it was like, wow. Well, I miss Barbara Streisand completely because she just came in after I went to Ananda. So I was somewhere, I think, in Seattle, and the movie Yentl was playing. And I, for one reason or another, a group of us went to see that movie. I don't think it was new at that time, but maybe it was. So we went to see it, because when they heard that I had never heard her sing, they thought it was a serious um, vacancy in my reality, so I needed to go hear her sing. And it was, you know, it's a very good movie. It's very... Swamiji once talked about some movie, and he said, we used to go to the movies more. This was like in the 80s, 70s, because there was really nothing. There was no other way to do anything in Nevada City, so we'd go to the movies. He said about a certain movie that it was well done, and someone said, oh, is it worth seeing? He said, I didn't say it was worth seeing. I said it was well done. (laughs) I've always noticed that distinction. (laughs) So Yentl was very well done. Um, but was, what was so interesting to me was the way the music, I mean, what the music was designed to do. It did exactly what it was designed to do, and of course she's a master at what she does. It was, the movie was well done. And what the music did is it kind of grabbed you by the heart, and then it kind of starts kneading your heart, starts pulling on it like taffy. It gets you all sort of engaged in this tremendous emotion. It pulls you out. It doesn't lift you up. It just pulls you straight out like that with, with great effect. And you're just totally sucked in and you're sailing out. And then that's it. And so you hang out there for a moment and then you go like that. Because <laughs> you're just, you're pulled out of yourself. You're not really fulfilled. You're just, um, well, stimulated, made restless, you know, filled with desire for all this longing for you know, it's the story of her desire for family and all the... She imitates a boy. She wants education. and So it's, it's every, nothing really quite works out. And it's all just this crazy longing expressed in music and then utterly disappointed. And it was great. It did exactly that. Completely pulled you out of yourself and then dropped you on the sidewalk. And then you, all, you went out with a sense of... You know, what an experience. <laughs> like that. And it was true, and she did it great. And uh, even the song ends, the movie ends, as I recall, with her just going off to the new world, you know, with the same sense of, oh, maybe, maybe, now, it will happen. And that's, that's life. And, and I, I realized very powerfully, 
you know, just what Swami's music does and why we can listen to it over and over, even though you would think we couldn't, because it interiorizes your energy and lifts it. And that is an, an ever-renewing experience, because every time you interiorize and lift your energy, you're going, if not entirely into, you're at least going toward Satchitananda, ever-new joy. And even if you are left with a certain longing, it's, it's an upward-moving longing that in itself is fulfilling and that holds the promise of fulfillment. Whereas what that other movie did to us was make sure that we knew that it was never going to happen. Because on that level, it never will happen. Maybe she will get to the new world and this will happen and that will happen, but we all know what the end of that story is. You hold the whole thing in your hand. Wow, is that all there is? What do I do now? And so the more we can have those experiences, they, they just, by themselves, nibble away at the ego. That's why if you just do Kriya, you just nibble away at the ego. Your own vibration becomes more and more refined and you're less and less pulled toward things that bring you back. That's why Swamiji, in meditation, he contrasted what he was feeling in meditation with the the so-called pleasure of his own intellectual brilliance. And not only was there no contest, to even think about that intellectuality as being satisfied was ridiculous. That's how he put it. So what is the effort? This is ridiculous. Why would I do that? Why would I continue to just... Um, you know, huddle in the dark closet when I can just open the door and go out into the, into the beautiful meadow. Let's see, there was one other idea there. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, I know. There was a, a long-time uh, member of our sangha who was a very deeply devoted person, but, not, uh, but wasn't able to embrace all aspects of the spiritual path. You know, just um, had certain uh, attachments to this world, attachments to certain desires that were um, sustained rather than even sporadic, sustained imperfections, and meditation was not their strong suit. But they were always here. You know, they came to, that person came to everything that happened and absolutely loved being in this energy. And when I was talking to the person, just sort of saying like, because they were concerned, you know, guilty and worried. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. I'm not capable of doing this. I still want that. I'm just, there you have it. I said, but you love the vibration of Ananda. I said, you're always here. And you know, every minute that you can possibly be in this vibration and volunteering and, you know, doing all the things that we do, totally with the program, every minute that was possible to be engaged because you love the vibration. I said, just think about that, really. And that's huge. Whatever else is not together, if you love this vibration and you keep putting yourself into this vibration and taking more and more of it, the other just falls away because, because this teaches you. This teaches you where real satisfaction comes from and you have a point of comparison. And that's what Swami describes, is what gave him that sudden ability to cast out that whole ego. Well, his whole ego is how he put it. He cast his whole ego out. Was that he had a point of comparison. 
So anything that just allows you to just keep adding, don't worry about what you're not doing, just keep concentrating on what you are doing. Even if you've got the whiskey bottle in one hand and the Kriya beads in the other, if you keep on with the Kriya beads, you'll have an increasing point of contrast, and then you will simply lose, lose your appetite for the opposite. And there's never a point, Mahatma Gandhi said, don't ever give up a pleasure until you have replaced it with a higher pleasure. In other words, you, you, your own deeper, deepening satisfaction. Of course, you know, there's points at which you have to struggle a little, but you're struggling because you know where you're going. It's not just a theoretical idea. I would love to be without ego. I wouldn't, I wasn't, I've been contemplating, I mean, it's not an idea, oh, I'd love to be without ego, except not this and not this and not that and not this. I, I was contemplating, I, I, that's right, I talked about it on Sunday, you know, do we really want to get rid of all our karma? Do we want to just get rid of the parts that we don't like? <laughs> it's really quite different. Really inviting God to come in and take up residence within you and drive everything out means everything. Sister Gyanamata said, I, had, I didn't understand why I had to give up everything, even those things that were harmless and mine by right. She said, even those had to go. Because it has to be total. If, if God is going to occupy the space, there's no self in there. And we need to be determined and adventurous and uh, fierce and realistic and nibble rather than pretend uh, a capacity that we're growing into. Our confidence needs to come as uh, Master gave it to Swamiji. Oh, how was it when you were playing the part of Jesus in that tableau, the story you all know? And Jesus, Swami played the part because he had a beard, and Swami said, oh, I'd rather be like Christ than just look like him. And Master said, oh, that will come. Just like that. So that's, that's sort of the balance point between a realistic understanding that I need, to, I need to nibble, and the understanding that I'll, I'll be free, of course I'll be free. Absolutely I'm going to be free. Just not the slightest doubt that I'll be free, because that is really what I want. And I'm, that's where I'm looking. Uh, I, 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 I've realized the difference between men and women. Uh, uh, men, because they represent the sun, and women the moon. The moon is always changing, always. Every single day it's shifting. And the women are intensely interested in the minutiae of things. You know, I felt better this morning, but by 10 o'clock this morning, I'm really not sure exactly what happened. But then I called my girlfriend, and she said she was having the same experience. <laughs> and the poor husband comes home, and he has to listen to, you know, the, the, the point by point from 11 to 11.30, and then what happened at noon, and, you know, just on and on. And how was your day, honey? Fine. <laughs> I actually, because he's, he's looking at the horizon. He's looking where he's going. He knows where he's going. The male, and men and women are, are not pure examples of either, but he's looking there, and you know, it's so, like, well, who cares what happened at 10 this morning? And then, <laughs> like, it doesn't make any difference. I'm just, just what I'm walking through to get there. And the woman is... <laughs> but on the spiritual path, you put your attention over there. 
And, and if you keep your attention there, no matter what, whether you operate as a male or a female through this, or alternate days you do it differently, you never, you never let go. As long as, as long as it's there, freedom is guaranteed. So, let's take a couple of minutes. Because <laughs> we've done a whole crashing one sutra tonight with a four-line commentary, okay. <laughs> which is why I'm going to get really old doing the Gita also. <laughs> but we're, we're moving through Patanjali. It'll be probably 50 classes like the other one. Okay, any, any comments or thoughts? So, we will go on to sutra number 212. So we will have done two tonight. Um, past karmas have their origin in the aforementioned obstacles, which are ego involvements, and cause the events experienced in the present birth and in future births. Okay. You know, this is free will karma. Um, it, it, I, this is such an interesting question, and all the masters talk about it, and everybody wants to know. It's, it's like we set up we are trapped by all the, all the past karmas have their origin in the obstacles, which is karma is unlearned lessons. There's lots of ways to define karma, but unlearned lessons is my favorite definition of karma. And the unlearned, what you haven't yet learned, is you haven't, we haven't yet learned to be completely untouched by the swirling waves of duality. We, we haven't yet learned to just stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. And we tend to think of the crash of breaking worlds as earthquakes and, I mean, breaking worlds meaning like that world breaks. But the world that breaks much more continuously is the, the world of our own making, of our own hopes, our expectations, our desires. You know, I thought I would be a lot richer by now. I thought I would be a lot more established in the world by now. I thought I would be married and have a family by now. I thought I always, you know, whatever. Somebody told me, and I have no idea where this fact comes from, that everybody in the world is 20% more attractive than they think they are. (laughs) I would love to see the psychological study. Probably the government paid for it. (laughs) But, you know, we, we tend to not know what's happening. And we tend to focus in on what we're disappointed. Swami was fond of repeating some a statistic you read somewhere that when many people in their 40s were asked what was the best moment of their lives, many people said their high school prom, which, you know, some of us did not really think of that as the best moment of our lives. But, but what he was saying was very interesting because at that point, everything could be imagined how it was going to come out. And by the time you're 40... It's sort of like the, it's, you, you, you know that it's a lot harder to make your way in this world than you imagined it was. I, I was with a, a, an acquaintance, uh, someone that I have a professional rather than a personal relationship with, and that person has managed to make a creative life for herself, but by being a very um, attentive entrepreneur. And we were just talking about something or another, and she kept coming up with ideas about how we could monetize that particular idea. And then she laughed and she said, I've had to make my way in this world. She's an immigrant. I've had to make my way in this world, so I'm always thinking like that. And I realized, yeah, of course. I, 
I've been in an ashram since I was a young woman. I haven't had to make my way in the world. I, I left um, these last couple of weeks. Somehow the simplicity that I imagined for this month has just gone crazy. I did feel that I needed to start organizing. Have I mentioned this? A trip to Australia and to New Zealand. I'm on for October in New Zealand, and I'm still sort of trying to see whether Australia's going to come together. Which, you know, we're so naive. I just sort of start in on this, not really realizing what, what all the things that it starts meaning. And that's just part of what's been going on. And I, I've just felt a little bit like I've been in a blender. Like this. And I said to David, I was explaining that to him, and he said, it's all, uh, it's all self-initiated. He said, everything. I said, I've got so much going on. He said, well, it's all self-initiated. And I stopped for a minute and I think, yeah? I mean, that's what we have to do. We just have to keep at it. We have to keep pushing. I mean, in his life, my life, it's all the same. So yeah, I've been making my way in this world for a long time. But I've always, it's always been about how can I expand the work? How can I follow in Swami's footsteps? I mean, I laughed and I said, yeah, I'm just trying to be as much like Swami as I can, which is not much, but that's at least the direction, that's the model we're trying to grow into. And he just tried to do it all, so we have to try to do it all. Now, um, the, just a second, the point is, oh, the point is about... Um, the unlearned lessons and the crash of breaking worlds. That's what I was coming to. The worlds that break constantly are, are the worlds of our own imagining, of how we think it ought to be. Just we're, we're always thinking how it ought to be, and it never is. They rarely cooperate, among other things, and it doesn't cooperate. It's just always different. And, we're, and it's always shattering, and we're always having to reestablish ourselves in it. And the capacity to do that. I've watched myself and others on the spiritual path. At the beginning, one is intensely interested in oneself. One is intensely interested in all the nuances of how I feel and why I feel. And, and then you get into the concept of past lives and somebody will tell you who you were in your past life and what karma you had with that one. And you know, just you get all this stuff. And then after a while, the way it seems to me is that all ca- karma becomes generic just generic brand karma. It really doesn't matter if it's about personal relationships or about money or about health or about career or anything. It's just anything that has the capacity to pull us off center that persuades us of, now you can be upset because of what happened at work, because of the way you were raised, because of what your mother did to you, because of the fact that you're getting old, because your health isn't good, whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a fill in the blank. Now you are justified in moving off center. You have some unlearned lesson. This has the capacity to persuade me that I am no longer in the presence of God. And all of these are past karmas that have their origins in the aforementioned obstacles, which are ego involvement. And so we are just, we have a whole, but we have a whole huge array of these. These are the sustained imperfections that usually have to be lived through before we're going to get out of them. And so these are the karmas that are just going to push us, and they're, they're, so, they're such a powerful magnetism within us that we can't just say, oh, I think I won't do this. It's, it's just not possible. It's, we're really, really hungry. 
I mean, when you're really hungry, you just eat what's in front of you. And we're really hungry for these desires. We're really hungry for understanding even. And so our own desires push us. This is something that I've been working for for a long time. Um, When my parents became ill, my mother had Parkinson's and my father later had Alzheimer's or something like that. And uh, when, when their lives began to require more assistance from me, I was quite disconcerted about their lives because um, of several things, but mostly I would not have handled their situation the way they handled their situation. You know, what they thought were solutions were not the solutions that I would have put in place. And I kept trying to mold their reality after my own. And then I had this sudden revelation, which was a huge help to me. My parents were, by then, in their 80s, or, you know, probably about 80. And they had spent incarnations, you know, getting ready for the exact moment. (laughs) And far from feeling... um, wrong to them, it just felt perfectly natural. They'd been heading for that spot for a really long time. They'd made, you know, countless, well, if you go back into incarnations, millions of decisions to bring them to stand right there. And far from feeling alien, it was just the next natural step for them. It was their unlearned lesson. And my unlearned lesson was to let them have their life. and to not try to impose my reality on them. And as soon as I started helping them in a way that was consistent with their perception of reality, everything began to go so much nicer. And they liked me more. I was far more effective. And many things which I thought should be changed, they were perfectly happy with. I've had this funny feeling, this is so, so silly, but it's... Now, this is what age, when I am young again, I'm not going to forget these things. Um, I have many kitchen tools, not many, but some kitchen tools in my kitchen that I've had for a really long time. But they work just fine. Um, They're not yet repaired with duct tape or that sort of thing, but they might yet become repaired with duct tape. But I remember, just in the the small way that you, you do, looking at my mother and to a certain extent uh, to my grandmother, whom I knew only just a tiny bit. But a lot of the stuff in her house was really old. And I, I felt it should be brought up to date. But they just, this was their stuff. They were just used to it. And I see myself pulling out the salad spinner. Every so often I'm at some really nifty kitchen store and I see a really nifty new salad spinner. And then I think about it, and I come home and I say, you know, this works great. I mean, God knows how long I've had it. Um, when, when David and I got married, part of his dowry was um, a champion juicer, those big yellow ones. And this was before they were made out of plastic. His was made out of metal. And we, we, I finally did finally replace it because they really came up with a model that was much better. But we, I mean, that thing was like 45 years old, and it was just fine. But it was also, it was, it was our life. And this is the one I've always used, and it works for me. But I, I extrapolated from that to realize this is how people live their lives. We're learning our unlearned lessons, and we're guided to right where we need to be. And until we're ready, 
to get rid of that old tool and modernize it, or until it ceases, we cease to need it anymore. And it's just like we're, everything is very consistent, and we just need to look and ask ourselves, what am I, what am I supposed to be learning here? There's no mistakes in this. We're exactly where we are. What am I supposed to be learning? What is the unlearned lesson? Because you know for a fact that a huge amount of energy brought me right to this spot. And, there's, and it's easy to say there's no mistakes and so on, but much more deeply, what is my unlearned lesson here? And the temptation that we were talking about earlier to think, I don't really have to deal with this. When I ended up having to spend so much time um, taking care of my parents, I was so surprised. I was absolutely shocked. Because I just thought that I didn't, wasn't going to have to do that. I just thought I wasn't. I thought my other, my sister would, or that I, my life was Ananda, and I didn't have any karma there. Ha! <laughs> you know, just ha! There was so much more. It just comes at you, and there you are. Interestingly, this is very interesting. It kind of was reaching a crescendo and I was having to spend so much time in Los Angeles and I finally said to my, I said to Master, to my guru, I said, Sir, this is really beginning to interfere with what I consider to be the life I'm really supposed to live. You know, like, what are we going to do? And very shortly after my mother left this world. And then the whole dynamic shifted. But it was sort of like, I I embraced it as much as I could but then I could really see that dharma was conflicting with, you know, lower and higher dharmas were beginning to conflict. I'd managed to hold it all together for a long time, but it was really beginning. And that's a real problem. You know, okay, Master, I've embraced this, but now, you know, I, I really don't believe I'm supposed to, that taking care of my parents is more important than taking care of my life here. So what are we going to do? And so he solved it. Just solved it in a way that was perfectly appropriate. You know, she was done, so she just went off. Um, but, uh, but what happens is that we set these unlearned lessons in motion. This is what the sutra is about. We set these unlearned lessons in motion. Do you see how complicated they are? You know, you have a relationship with someone, you half understand, you do it in a certain way, somebody hurts you, and then you develop coping mechanisms which are not really the best coping mechanisms but they work pretty well and then you get to a level where they're not working so good anymore or you're ready to understand yourself more deeply and then all of a sudden all this it's like it's um it's like a closet where you just throw things in for a long time you know just throw things in like that and then on a certain day you just have to open the closet and yeah and then there it is and it's all there and karmically, that's what we do. And then, you know, things just ooze out from the bottom or you open the door and something hits you on the head. And, and it's built up for a really long time. A really long time. And that's where this concept of how much free will do we have? My parents have spent, million, spent millions of incarnations becoming Murray and Cynthia Projector, living in Claremont, California, finishing that particular incarnation. And it was just exactly what they had in each of us, right here. And it's just going to run. And we just need to have a, you know, a courageous interest in it. Hmm, I wonder what she's going to do next. How fascinating, you know, that I responded like that. And not so much get so personal about it. 
And when we see these anomalies start coming out of us, we have to just start investigating them with great courage. Or these disharmonies. Wow, look at that. After all these years of marriage, we can still get each other's goat like that. Whew. What's going on here? With my mother, this was, my, this was the nadir. She was very weak, and she was lying on the couch. And, you know, because she was my mother, and we'd had all that subconscious years together, somehow something she did just irritated me so much, and I was just furious. And all of a sudden I realized, I can, hardly, I can hardly actually even admit this, I realized this. I was, there she was, she was so weak. She stretched out on the couch and I'm just about to, and I just turned around and walked out of the house. I thought, my God, look at me. You know, how could, how could I ever do that? I was just right. I wasn't going to hit her, but I was going to let her have it with words. Oh, look at that. Then you have to walk all the way back and you have to say, well, there's a lot more in there than I knew was in there. And so we realize we've just set all this in motion for a really long time and it's just going to have to keep playing itself out. And what Swami says, how much free will do we have? I mentioned on Sunday that little tidbit from Master that I'd never seen before where he put it, a, a, there's a small amount of free will, mostly it's predetermined, there's a small amount of free will, but only the wise can discern and so it's better to act as if it's all up to you. <laughs> Just to make your best effort. Because you don't know what's going to be the decisive factor here. And Master talked about that disciple of his who left the ashram. And she left to get married, I think. And he said if she had sta- stuck it out for 24 more hours, she would have been done with that karma forever. Now that, I mean, that was a great thing for him to say. Because when you're just about to give up, you think, well, maybe I only have 24 hours to go. I read in a... Did I talk about the Navy SEALs in here, or was that a different class? I read... I have this, I have this strange interest you know, you know, in challenging people, and this Navy SEAL who went through the final test, you know, that's that really tough training, he said most people quit in the rest, in the rest points between the challenges just because of their fear of what was coming, like that. So we just have to, just, whatever's going to come, it has to come. And our free will is exactly what he says. Which direction? Do we move toward God, or do we move away from him? Do we keep our eye over there on the fact that at the end of this, I will be free? And whatever it is in between... Whatever it is, I will be free in the end. We either turn toward God or we don't. And we try to solve the problems by drawing divine grace into it. Or we try to just stuff a few more things in the closet. Oh, I have a solution. If I push this back and then wrap this up this certain way and then do it like that and then slam the door. But, you know, that's just setting it up to have to face it later. So we always want to bring God into it. Okay, Lord. Give me the strength. If you're sending it to me, then that's when I was at the last, literally the very last with my parents. Master, this has suddenly become a real problem. Not, and by that point, I conquered my unwillingness, which was really big for a while, and my disbelief, which was also really big for a while, that I really do have a lot of karma with these people I'm going to have to work out, my parents. I just didn't know that I had it. Well, look at that. There was all this karma here. I didn't know it was here. 
I thought it was all done. But it wasn't at all. But then it became a problem, but I tried to solve it through Master. Okay, sir, what are we going to do? You know, you're, now I'm suddenly pushed in a way that I don't know how to solve this. You're going to have to solve it for me. I didn't, by that point I was letting go of any thought of time or when or nothing. I was just going to do what had to be done. I didn't think of the idea of, of having my mother leave this world. I'd given up. I just said, there's a problem here, you'll have to solve it. You'll be astonished what Master will do when you really are not asking him to rescue you, not asking him to perform a miracle, but really sincerely just doing the best you can, and you've just reached an impasse and you don't know how it's going to go. And like, wow, sir, how are we going to get through this? And when you really have that relaxation, then he always either gives you a second wind on the whole project, or he does something you didn't expect him to do. And many, many times he just does something you didn't expect him to do. When you're, because you see you've now learned the lesson, this karma no longer has the capacity to draw you away from your relationship with God. And that's when you're done. And then it doesn't matter to you either because it no longer has the capacity to draw you away. All right, thoughts or questions before we call this a night? Marilyn? I don't even know when I'm, that I'm deciding. It's, it seems like, like these things are happening and, and at each point I have, I could decide, you know, to turn to the light or, I'm, Actually, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the, but I don't even realize that I have that choice. I think that's a very important point that you brought up because in a, in a very real sense that's how my life goes also. I, nothing very interesting uh, of a super conscious nature ever happens to me. I just, I, and I'm exactly like you. I don't really know when I'm deciding. I just try to be even minded and cheerful and do whatever is in front of me to do. But that's also choosing God. See, this comes back to here. This is what I'm trying to say. The eight manifestations of the divine are really how we choose God. We choose love, peace, calmness, joy, energy, power, light in the sound of Om. And so it isn't so much that we're constantly you know, putting garlands on the statues or, or waving lights or anything like that, but in every circumstance, the way we choose God is we choose to be a channel for one of the manifestations of the Spirit. So we're calm in the face of a crisis, we're joyful when things look a little tough, um, we're peaceful when that's the right quality. We apply our wisdom when we need to. And so that's where the, the eight manifestations of God are one of, the, one of the really important tools in your toolbox. Because you, mostly you're not really. You're just living in the practical world. But what's coming through you? What are you channeling? What vibration are you attuned to? That's how you think about God or not. In the midst of this... Do I just cheerfully and energetically carry on? Or do I begin to worry about myself and wonder and stop and all that? No, I just needs to be done, I'll do it. And that's when you, you self-forgetful. 
You're just not even thinking about yourself. You're not even bothering to ask God to help you because you've developed the habit of manifesting his energy. Does, does that make sense? You know, when I had one of my most wonderful spiritual experiences was when, in one of the cycles when I was doing the school plays. And the play was Mirabai, the great devotee of Krishna. And uh, I, had, uh, I didn't listen to good advice when it was given to me. And I had this incredibly insane idea that I could put children in actual Indian clothes, like actual saris and actual dhotis, which are uncut pieces of material wrapped in certain ways. I didn't realize that a sari, for example, hangs on the woman's hips. And when you're dressing children, they don't have any. And dhotis were just completely loony. Um, This goes all the way to the performance In one of the plays, uh, the boy was playing the part of Gandhi, which we use Gandhi as a theme in that story about Mirabai. And I'm sitting over here during a performance, and this kid, it was Finn, um, the blonde-haired Finn who's in seventh grade or something now. And I watch him slither on the floor all the way over to me. He's a very bright, very cheerful kid. Asha, Asha, he's whispering, Asha, Asha. He said, I have to be on the stage in just a minute. My legs are all tangled up and I can't stand up. <laughs> he just, you know, he just gotten himself all wrapped up in this, all this fabric that I put on him and he couldn't stand up. <laughs> so very quietly, I had to find his feet, you know, pull them out. <laughs> it, was, it was class. Fortunately, he was such a great kid, he just slithered across the room and just came over to me. <laughs> But on the dress rehearsal, all the cost, a lot of the costumes fell off. <laughs> so we were just a couple of days before, and I had to just reconceive of a whole lot of this stuff because of my own. So I end up the night before the performance, and I have so many sewing jobs to do. I put them all on chairs like this. I put every, every job on a chair. And it was like you know eight or ten rows of chairs. Everyone had a job on it. And, and the whole set was set up, and there was this... Um, they had done some photo projection and they'd made like this eight-foot Krishna, beautiful colored Krishna was standing over there. And I was alone in this temple all night with Krishna. Just me and Krishna in this fantastic room, just moving from chair to chair, just putting those costumes together. And I finished, you know, like half an hour before the kids arrived. I just had to stay up all night. But it was wonderful. It was such a wonderful night. And it was just like, I, was, I just said, it has to be done. I'll just calmly and joyfully do it. And I felt so peaceful. I felt so happy. I still, every time I think about that, it was just such a wonderful night. And I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, of course, Krishna was right there. But I, I was just doing what I had to do. But I did it in that spirit. And then that's really, in the cold light of day, that's what it really comes down to. It's not so much what your mouth is saying, it's what, or what your mental chatter is saying, it's what, what's, actually, what's actually coming through you, the eight manifestations of spirit. I would say we'll probably start with 212. So I'll put 212 on this week, and I'll put 212 on next week. We're now marking the, the titles according to the sutras.